Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. This show was heard on WBCQ The Planet every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, WBCQ broadcast out of beautiful Monticello, Maine, in Arista County. And the show is also heard on ipmnation.com, which, uh, .org, uh, which is, uh, used to be broadcast at 4 p.m. Now it's 1 p.m. on Saturday afternoons. That's based out of New Hampshire. So <coughs> it's Eastern Standard Excuse me. <coughs> You can also uh, listen to the show on YouTube. You go to Camp Constitution's channel, and you'll be able to find most of the shows. We upload them as we can, and and you're welcome to share them. If you think some of these shows have some merit, you want to post them on your YouTube channel or Vimeo channel, go right ahead. We'd love to see that happen because we want to get the word out. And um, our scheduled guest tonight is Larry Pratt, the founder and leader of the Gun Owners of America. We'd like for him to call in. But before that, I just wanted to mention something here. In uh, West Virginia, there is uh, there's about seven or eight Article 5 resolutions that were pending. And they I think they unfortunately passed the uh, so-called balanced budget amendment, uh, call for a balanced budget amendment, Article 5 convention. And you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with the balanced budget amendment? Well, uh, first off, you cannot limit an Article 5 convention to any one topic. Uh, but it looks like Congress may be looking at resolutions that are identical before one is called. And if this resolution is passed in the West Virginia legislature, and we think it may have passed today, that gives us about, uh, I think, 28 states out of the 34 necessary to for Congress to call. This, it is possible that Congress may not acknowledge any of the old calls. Some of these calls go back to the 70s, maybe even 60s and early 80s, and also some of these calls are not identical. Uh, so they may not acknowledge them, but we have to act like we we have six states to go before a constitution is put on the chopping block. And Meckler, Mr. Mark Meckler, who is the founder of Convention of States, I discussed him before in his organization, he put out a YouTube video, all the horrible, shameful tactics of the West Virginia legislature because his resolution was not supported. And whatever procedures they use, um, parliamentary procedures, they just they didn't have a voice vote. And he's all indignant. So I uh, am in the process of pointing out to him that his before he takes the speck out of his brother's eye or his neighbor's eye, take the log out of his eye because his organization does some rather nasty things, including uh, accusing people of bribery and accusing elected officials of accepting bribes. They did that in New Hampshire. They did apologize to the senator. Uh, It was a really weak apology. 
but they didn't apologize to the other parties that they accused of giving bribes to. So, Mr. Meckler, uh, <clears throat> rein in your um, your rascals who are doing this, um, and, and you have no you're in no position to be calling people um, out when your organization is part of this, a part of the problem. Well, anyway, it's uh, still haven't heard back from uh, Larry. Hopefully, he'll call in soon. That's sort of the nature of the, uh, the radio show here. Sometimes your guests, for, for whatever reasons, don't always call in. And uh, but uh, just let me tell you a little bit about Larry Pratt. Larry is, uh, as I said earlier, the founder and director of Gun Owners of America. It is uh, probably the most constitutionalist-minded organization, gun organization, and while groups like NRA have done some good work over the years, they're the giant on the block, and they, uh, but they don't always get it right. Many times they pass legislation or endorse legislation that is actually harmful, but when you, when you have a couple of million members and lots of money, there are times when the NRA has endorsed even liberal candidates and some that are not necessarily 100% in favor of the right to keep their arms. Recently, a few years ago, in uh, upstate New York, in the greater Albany area, there was a liberal Democrat who was, was a, he had a terrible voting record on most issues. And I guess he was sort of like a C-minus on a report card. But for some reason, he was endorsed by the NRA. And, uh, and it was in a somewhat conservative area where uh, people were putting up signs that supported him, saying, endorsed by the NRA. Well, the NRA had no business endorsing him. In fact, they should have uh, they either should have remained on the sidelines. The uh, person running for the Republican uh, on the Republican side had a, wasn't elected, wasn't didn't, ha- didn't have a a voting record on the subject. Obviously, not had not served uh, in a capacity to take a vote, but was very much pro Second Amendment and pro right to keep their arms. And this person uh, did got elected. Thankfully, uh, they did that too. There was a man in. Maryland by the name of Zach Womp, kind of a hard name to forget. He was a life member of the NRA, and he was running for uh, Congress. His opponent was a another Democrat, liberal, and uh, the voting his voting record on the right to keep their arms was not terrible, but like a C or a C plus. So he didn't uh, vote for all. It wasn't a strict constitutionalist, and the NRA endorsed the. Liberal Democrat, and uh, when they were taken to task by this uh, endorsement, the uh, spokesman, I don't remember the name of the spokesman at the time, but they said, um, well, at least he will talk to us. We can sit down and talk to him. Well, you give me money, uh, I'll talk to you too. I may not support you. I may not support what you uh, what you advocate, but I'll probably talk to you. Sure, will. As the check is going off to the campaign coffers, sure. Just don't expect me to change my position. Um, anyway, uh, Mr. Womp won the election, and in the wake of that, uh, NRA was claiming victory that we won another seat, another good seat. So they try to have it both ways. And I'm not here to bash the NRA so much. I know that they've done some good things over the years. I'm not, you know, it's uh, it's not probably a, a wise thing to do is to bash uh, an organization like that. But I think it's important that the members who support it uh, keep it on the right track. They keep it focusing on the right to keep and bear arms, and you do not compromise. You do not compromise with Congress. Well, 
you give us this and we'll give you that because if you compromise, you lose. And we've been losing uh, in many cases. And by the way, there are some good signs around the country. There are some states that have passed uh, concealed carry laws and open carry laws and some, some fewer restrictions and so forth. Uh, and that's a good thing. But, of course, uh, there's hundreds, thousands of uh, laws that restrict the right to keep their arms in the state of Massachusetts where I live. It's one of the probably the worst states to be in when it comes to gun ownership. They have uh, You have to put a lock on your handgun or rifle if you keep it in the house. Now, let me tell you something. You're, uh, you're, you're in bed at night, and you hear the, the door, someone's kicking in the door, and you know, it's, it's a criminal, it's a thief. He's going to come here to rob and murder and rape or whatever. Then you've got to find your gun lock and, open it, you know, and then load your gun uh, and hope that by the time you do that, the criminal has not, uh, or the, the rapist or murderer has not been able to accomplish what he came in to do. Um, so uh, that was passed. I'm, and some of these things are not enforceable. I don't know how many people lock all of their guns and make them uh, inaccessible. But what's the point of having one if you don't have access to it when you need it? You don't have time, you know, when, uh, you know, when seconds count. You don't have uh, minutes. Minutes uh, it takes minutes for the police to show up when seconds count. And I'm sure that the criminal or rapist or murderer isn't going to say, "Well, I'll tell you what, I want to give you a fighting chance. I'm sporting about this. I'm a sporting thief and criminal murderer." And I'll give you uh, time to uh, give you five minutes head start, a little warning or what have you. It doesn't work that way, folks. <clears throat> There's another gun group that I was affiliated <coughs> with. Um, it's the Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership. The founder, Aaron Zellman, has passed away a few years ago. I remember interviewing him some years ago on a radio station in New Hampshire back, I guess, in the mid-'90s. And uh, he had a volunteer of a New England director, and I was able to host a lot of speeches and presentations. And this group was another no-hold-bars no hold group. You didn't have to be Jewish to belong to it. And they probably had a lot of uh, and have a lot of non-Jewish members, but they put out some great information. They had posters and even little cartoons designed for uh, you know, young people, uh, color, uh, not color, um, comic books. And they had some really good books. They had a book on the 1968 gun control laws and how they how they almost duplicated the Nazi laws in the 1930s. Uh, they just changed the language a little bit and uh, from German to English and used what you had in 1968. Uh, and by the way, that book, which I can't think of it, uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but that's available on Amazon and it's quite expensive too, even though it came out some years ago. Uh, but the Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership uh, they had a po- and they probably still have it available a poster, and it's a drawing. It's not a, an actual picture of Adolf Hitler, but it says, "All in favor of gun control, please raise your right hand." And of course, it's Hitler giving the Nazi salute. And I remember uh, back when Massachusetts was on the verge of passing a particular bad gun law, um, a few of us got together and mailed out this poster. The poster was probably, oh. You know, maybe uh, 18 inches by 8 inches or something like that. It was a full color on a, a stock that you could actually mail, thicker than postcard stock. We mailed out copies of this excuse me, to uh, every member of the Senate and House of Representatives and I think the governor of Massachusetts. It's sort of a giant postcard. 
and boy, did it did it shake things up a little bit. They delayed the vote, and uh, some media people got a hold of us. They got a hold of Aaron Zellman, and I remember Aaron telling me the reporter said, "Oh, they're really angry. They're really." And there was one particular very liberal Jewish guy, uh, state senate, I think, that was particularly upset and offended by it. And Aaron's comment, he said, well, if uh, they're offended by us reminding them that they are supporting Nazi measures when it comes to gun control, just stop supporting Nazi gun control and we'll start reminding you. So uh, it was quite effective, I think, at that time. um, there's a few other groups that are uh, gun organizations that are doing Oh, there's a group called Second Amendment Sisters. Now, it used to be a national group, and it was going well for a while, uh, but it it folded. However, the Massachusetts members, um, got uh, led by Lynn Roberts, she, uh, and I'll have her as a guest sometime on the show, she uh, wanted to keep it going, so she formed uh, Massachusetts Second Amendment Sisters, which... Uh, so the organization is still, um, at least here in Massachusetts, you think of all states that it would, an organization like that would die, you'd think Massachusetts would be the first one. Well, it's the one that kept the banner. And this group um, teaches ladies how to shoot and practice shooting. And they uh, will take anybody, any lady, I think you have to be a certain age. I don't know if you have to be 17 or 18 or whatever it is. And I think even with your parents, you can take uh, smaller children. It depends on the the insurance and the range they're using and uh, what have you. But uh, you can spend the day shooting. A Saturday is usually the day every third or fourth Saturday of the month uh, for a very short money. In some cases, it's free. Um, you just go and uh, learn the uh, techniques of um, not only firearm safety, but how to use that weapon. And it's a great, uh, it's a wonderful, important skill, and it gives uh, ladies confidence in what they're doing. So uh, women don't have to be victims. You know, most women aren't as strong as most men, and uh, they don't have the upper body strength, but women can be excellent shots. In fact, it's my theory that uh, because I think they may, their fingers may be a little more sensitive to the touch, that could be why they're such good shots, a lot of them. It was interesting. I took my wife to a Second Amendment sister shoot when they had one in New Hampshire, and they basically say, okay, guys, get out of here. We don't need any men around. Because, see, men think they know more about these things than women, and you'd be surprised how many women really know their stuff. And I was, um, so I was very impressed with the, the group and the caliber of member, no pun intended. So uh, if you're interested, I would say just check up, look on the line, Second Amendment Sisters of Massachusetts, and you'll get information if you live in Massachusetts. And who knows, maybe you can work with Lynn Roberts and maybe you can get a group started in your area. Um, and I, I get back to uh, the the Jews for the Presidential Firearms Ownership. It's a wonderful group. And uh, even though the founder passed away, boy, Aaron was a wonderful man. Um, he was a, uh, a medic, I believe, in Wisconsin. I got a chance to meet him personally uh, back in 2008. And he died a few years later. He was only in his late 50s, I think early 60s. So we did lose a very important patriot. But his work goes on. And uh, again, I was very, uh, very impressed with him. And uh, they, anyhow, we started this group. And one of the things they did, it's interesting how you, the, the media, the corporate media, is uh, there's ways to, to put it to your, to your advantage. And what they did is they put up, I remember they, some of their members in Rhode Island, they put a big post, uh, billboard on the highway uh, near Providence, Rhode Island, and it had that all in favor of gun control, please raise your right hand. 
And some liberals got very offended, especially liberal Jews. They got very offended by this. It made national news and pictures of that huge, um, that huge um, <clears throat> billboard were plastered in newspapers all over the country. That was thousands of dollars of free advertisement. The liberals get, sometimes they, uh, they're not as savvy as they want us to think. They just uh, should have kept their mouth shut. And uh, that would have been up for a month or so and taken down. But uh, that got national attention, and it motivated people. More and more people to get involved. So that's the kinds of things we have to do uh, to take advantage of, uh, you know, kind of use the, you know, the, the corporate media. We're not big enough to take them on, uh, you know, uh, hand-to-hand. So like a geo expert, you use that weight in your favor. So you can be, you know, a lot smaller than the giant corporation, corporate-controlled media, but you can put it to use if you if you're smart and do it. And I also encourage people, local activists, get to know that reporter of that local newspaper. And uh, we don't expect the big newspapers to give us a lot of uh, sympathetic coverage, sympathetic coverage, but that local newspaper can do that. You know, uh, you develop a rapport, and they'll come out to your event. They're looking for stories. And the uh, big newspapers, the hard copy newspapers, thankfully, a lot of them are folding. They're losing circulation. Uh, the Boston Globe, which was, you know, everybody was afraid of the Globe. All of the conservatives, well, if you don't say it, if you really have to be careful because you really can't say completely, be completely truthful because the Globe will come after you. Elected officials who were conservatives were so afraid of the Globe going after them and so forth. Now the Globe is a shell of what, used, what it used to be. And uh, it's owned now by the, uh, uh, John Henry, the man who owns the Red Sox, or at least most of the Red Sox. And they want to downsize it and move it into the downtown Boston of instead of where it is today in the, in the town, in the section of Dorchester. So, so these newspapers aren't as, uh, aren't, aren't as influential as they used to be, thankfully. Uh, but we as patriot activists need to be more. I mean, we have things we didn't have 20 and 30 years ago. We have the Internet. We have blogs. We have things like uh, the Patch, which I think is owned by AOL. But it's uh, a lot of towns around the country have this uh, local patch. You can write a blog for that local patch and get the word out that way. Uh, the letters to the editor used to be one of the major sources for us to get our word out. Uh, the hard copy newspapers, you'd type a letter on your uh, on your word processor, print it out, and hope it gets published. Uh, but today, you can go online, uh, you can post things, you can post comments, and when you comment, it's not a good idea to get nasty. Just comment and have a link to some information that refutes that. Um, and so that's that's the way to use the media to your advantage. Not not to get into some kind of uh, a spitting contest with some from some people on the other side. Make a few comments and be on your way. And but one of the key things of getting something published is to respond to an article that you've read either online or in, in the hard copy, uh, and then re- respond to that. But you could. Um, there's just amazing things you can do with the media that you couldn't have done 20 or 30 years ago, and we need to take more of advantage of that. Of course, Facebook, you know, most towns have a Facebook page, and you can post things on that Facebook page, and uh, lots of people read it, copy and paste your letter to the editor uh, on that local uh, Facebook page. That's what uh, I did with some success in Ringe, New Hampshire. We discussed this before, but um, on a 
I think I had uh, an earlier show. I think I may have had uh, Tom DeWeese on the show a few few shows ago, and then I had him on probably about a year ago. But we discussed what happened in the little town of Ringe, how I simply was in town leaving information off on Agenda 21 to uh, the, the selectmen, the three selectmen. I discovered something called a charrette or a visionary session. I found the printout right on the table. It wasn't hard to find. It was right there by the window where the town clerk was. And I realized that that's, that was the charrette was a plan to bring Agenda 21 into town. I wrote a letter, two, maybe three paragraphs to the local newspaper, copied and pasted on the town Facebook page. And some of the, uh, the leftists, the so-called progressives in town, were furious. But uh, the, uh, the liberty-minded people who had no use for these progressives saw what was going on, and they, they got a hold of me. In a short time, they held a meeting, had 200-plus people. And, and then uh, five months after that, they had questions on the ballot. They had educated themselves. They did a few mailings in the small town. And within that five-month period, Agenda 21 was just totally kicked out of town. And it was done because, you know, you took a, we took advantage of the local media. And it worked very well. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, getting back to the, the Second Amendment issue, <clears throat> I've had my, my good friend Dan McGonigal here as a guest talking about the militia. Um, we've had other people discuss that. But um, the Second Amendment, and it's, it, it's so hard to, um, you have to really reinforce this. The Second Amendment did not give us any right. In fact, none of the amendments did. It simply protected those rights that already belonged to us. The right to keep and bear arms was was ours to begin with. The patriots on Lexington Green, they didn't sit around and say, well, gee, we really don't have a reason. We're really not allowed to own weapons because there is an amendment yet that gives us that right. No, they had that right. And I don't care if you're an atheist or a humanist, but we believe here that you have God-given rights. And if you don't believe them, you can still exercise them. And one of them is the right to self-defense, whether it's an individual right or if it's a community and through a, through a, a, a militia to be able to defend yourself, your family. In fact, if you read some of the state constitutions, which I highly recommend you do, um, you'll see comments like you have the right to defend your life and your property. Well, how do you defend property? You defend it um, by calling 911 and hiding somewhere or running out of the house. Well, you defend it with uh, something that's going to overcome your adversary, right? You're not going to defend it just by screaming, running out of the house and hoping someone hears you, or throwing rocks. Uh, that may work, or throw a chair. That may work too, but uh, I think the best way to do it, and oh, yeah, you may be a, um, a gifted athlete. You may be proficient in some martial art or the the mainly skill of boxing, uh, but and that's another way to defend yourself, but the best way to do it is with a, with a firearm. That's the most uh, proficient way. And But I tell people, if you're not willing to shoot somebody, then don't own a weapon uh, and, and don't point at somebody. And hopefully it never happens, that you never have to use a firearm uh, to defend your property. I remember, uh, this was some years ago, I uh, was living in an apartment, and my younger sister called me. It was probably about one o'clock in the morning and she was quite scared. She said that there's somebody or somebody's in the backyard trying to break into the house. Now she was living there with my parents at the time who were both deceased and my older sister who was um, living there as well. And she, uh, I told her, 
I was about a mile and a half away. So he called the police. Meanwhile, I'll be there. Now, I got there before the police did, and I got there within a short time, and I had a, I had a weapon on me. At that time, there was nobody. The, the perpetrators had been gone, had taken off, but she was petrified. But she saw me, and she saw my my uh, my weapon, and she got very, um, I don't know if she felt comfortable after that. The police showed up. It was a good 10 minutes later, and I'm not faulting the police. It was a busy night, Friday or Saturday night, where there's probably a lot of calls. And uh, you can't expect that there's only five or six patrols in this particular part of the city of Boston. You can't expect them to show up uh, within a matter of seconds. But I was savvy enough to make sure I didn't have the rifle on my my, my weapon on me. I made sure it was in the house because they would have they would have shot at me. I see a guy with a rifle walking around in the backyard, you know, at the, the driveway. So everything was fine. And uh, but my sister, who was in favor of gun control, had a big change after that. And another time, I was uh, with a friend, and we were heading off to work. Uh, I had worked, I had just been out of the Army, it was 19, summer of 1980, and we were heading uh, into uh, downtown Boston to uh, work at this building where we were security guards. Uh, we were not armed security guards, by the way, and my friend at the time was now deceased. He had a, an unregistered handgun, which was underneath the passenger seat in the front. And we went through a neighborhood which uh, maybe was one of the high crime neighborhood, and uh, usually not a bad area to go through the daytime. But at night it can be a little hairy. So we had a red light, and some uh, some young men didn't uh, appreciate our presence in this neighborhood, and we're going to take action. There was about ten of them, maybe twelve of them, and I refused to be a victim, and so I simply uh, grabbed the, uh, the the handgun. And I didn't point it, I just showed it and kind of dangled it in my hand. And from uh, let's get these so-and-sos to we cool, we cool, everything's cool. I said, you better believe it's cool. And we got out of there. So that the very fact that he had the handgun was an indicator, prevented us from being statistic. And in fact, you could look, there was a great, there was a professor from Florida and he wrote, uh, he was in favor of uh, gun control. He did a study back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and he wrote his report. I think his last name was Glick, Professor Glick. Uh, more guns mean less crime. And he looked around the country, and he looked at uh, the number of times guns were used to prevent crime and save lives, and it's like a hundred, like a thousand to one percentage uh, the time a gun was used to commit a crime versus to save lives, and how many lives were saved every day, all 365 days a year. And one of the things I would love, if, if I had the time and the research and money available, I would love to be able to see a study. Maybe a study has been done, and I'm not aware of it. But if you look in the, around the country where you see most of the violent crime, I'm guessing that 95% of the violent crime is committed on probably about 2% of the property, 2% uh, of the land mass in the United States. So... I um, mean, you look at the inner cities, unfortunately, with the broken families and the moral decline, you see more crime there and more violent crime. So if you were to take, say, say the square mileage of where most of the crime is committed, it'd be a small area. Look at Chicago, Washington, D.C., Detroit, um, New York City, and areas like this where most of the violent crime is committed, but all, well, relatively small area. Look at Vermont, for example, which I get up to and I get up to on a regular basis. It has a it has the 
one of the highest per capita gun ownership ownerships in the country, but one of the lowest crime rates. And you see states like North Dakota and Maine and Idaho with um, the same thing, a high ownership, a very large per capita ownership of guns and a very low crime rate. Well, why is that? How come that's the case? Why is it that you don't hear a lot about drive-by shootings and gang, gang uh, crime-related crime in Vermont, in Montpelier, Vermont, for example? But you hear about it in Boston. You hear about it in Detroit and Los Angeles and the big cities. Why is that? So uh, could it be that, and by the way, I think that where there's more crime, there should be more people owning guns. It makes sense, doesn't it? And it's unfortunate that if you're poor, you can't afford to, you go try to get a permit, you know, and they deny you. That police chief has that kind of authority. Nope, I'm sorry, you're not going to get one. You you can't hire, you can afford to hire a lawyer for two or $3,000. So you can get your, and then you have to spend to get a half decent gun. You got to spend (coughs) And then you have to get some training. You got to call. You know, you have to get some be a, a approved. It's a big process to be able to exercise that right. So you know, it's hard for you to get that um, where you can where in a, in a rural area or some of these states with with smaller populations a whole lot easier. So uh, well, it's, I'm sorry that our guest didn't call through, and we'll try to get him again. But uh, the show must go on. And uh, what can say is that the Second Amendment is the amendment that makes all these others possible. The right to keep and bear arms. And by the again, I should say, the Second Amendment didn't give us that right. It protects that right to keep and bear arms. And uh, so for that, I want to thank you. And again, I want to mention that this show was uh, sponsored by Camp Constitution. You can visit our website, campconstitution.net, where you will find some great thing information about our wonderful week-and-a-day-long family summer camp to take place July 10th to the 17th. And if you listen to this show in Maine, um, we'll be at the homeschool show. Um, we'll be up there. There'll be some people uh, involved with our camp program up there and uh, learn about our camp. But we'll also be at the Mass Hope Homeschool Show uh, in April. Uh, so again, visit our website, campconstitution.net. Thank you, and God bless.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.